Okay, if you have a child, that is tag 605. There it is. Well, you don't have to come up here. We won't. We'll have somebody. Eric will take it to you. There you go. So, my wife is in uh, Kansas City over this weekend. Uh, down that aisle. Um, my wife is in Kansas City uh, this weekend. I was actually talking to some folks down here, and I said, "My life just is never as good, and never as organized as uh, when she's here." And uh, she actually. Um, we had a couple birthday parties, and she put these notes, big post-it notes, on all the presents and had a little box by each one of them with what to do. And she said, don't take it off until you check it off. Well, yesterday I took one of the cards, and I checked everything on, or checked everything off, but I left the post-it note on the card. Uh, so if you get a graduation gift with a post-it note, it's probably for me. Well, hey, I'm so glad that you're here today because today we are beginning a brand new series that will uh, continue throughout the summer, and we're going to be looking at uh, one of the central figures of the Bible, a guy by the name of David. And we're going to learn to know David so well that you might say by the end of the summer, you could call yourself a Davidologist, um, is because we're going to know him so well. And uh, some of you might be sitting there and you might be thinking, well, why are we spending all of this time just on one person, one man? I mean, what's such a big deal? Well, David was a remarkable person. And in fact, as I was looking at some scholars this week that looked at his life, they said that he may be at the top of the list when it comes to the human race because of the diversity of gifts and talents that he had that impacted uh, not only his world, but are still impacting our lives today. So the question really becomes then, who was David? I mean, when it comes right down to it, who was he? And uh, first of all, you want to kind of get a context of um, where did he come uh, in the whole line of the Bible. And he was about a thousand years before Jesus. He was born in a thousand forty. And uh, these are some of the things that you'll want to know about him. First of all, he was an outstanding musician. He was an outstanding musician. In fact, he was such a skilled musician that uh, the king, King Saul, when he would have bad days or he would get depressed, he would invite David to come in and play the harp and the other instruments uh, to kind of take care of his depression. I mean, uh, David's music was kind of like musical Prozac. You know what I mean? Whatever the depressive thing that he was going through, it would just take that away. Uh, David also was a fearsome warrior. He was a fearsome warrior. He won a battle against a, a giant, a guy by the name of Goliath. And David wasn't even able to shave yet, and yet he was that tough. He attracted many different uh, warriors to follow him as uh, he went through different battles. And he conquered all of the enemies uh, of the Israel nation and uh, had a series of peace that Israel had not known before and Israel uh, still has not experienced today. And he was a tough guy. 
The Scripture tells us that he battled and killed both a lion and a bear. I mean, this was not a person that you wanted to mess with. Not only that, but he also was an artistic poet. He was a poet. He had a soft side. He wrote the largest book uh, in the Bible, uh, Psalms, which has 150 chapters in it. And what he wrote about was the longing that our hearts, every heart, has for God. And he was so deeply moved that when he wrote this, that a thousand years later and thousands of years later, and now in 2012, the book of Psalms still is probably the most read devotional book of teaching people how to pray. He wrote the prayer book, you might say, for the entire human race. Not only that, but he was a political statesman. He was a statesman of uh, the political arena in a way that Israel had never seen before. He had achieved a level of economic success that Israel has never known since that period of time. And there was stability. And his reign was just filled with everything that was good and powerful and amazing. It was kind of the golden age of Israel. You might say it was their Camelot. Not only that, he was an amazingly attractive person. We're told that uh, several times in Scripture about the physical specimen that he was, and that he was a, a very attractive man. And his personality was one in which people were just drawn to him. They were magnetically kind of taken to him. It's like David was a magnet and men and women both were attracted to him because of the skill set and the charismatic leader that he was. And folks, all of that that I just shared was in just one man. So let's kind of put it in context. He was a poetic soul like Shakespeare. He had a competitive nature like Peyton Manning. He had the musicianship of Beethoven. He had the statesmanship of Abraham Lincoln. And he had the attractiveness of Brad Pitt, who my wife thinks is quite handsome. Although lately, I don't know if you've seen Brad, there's a recent picture that's out. He looks a little bit more dumpy in real life, to be quite honest. And so I kind of feel sorry for him. So just imagine, you know, David being Brad Pitt's face, but even a lot better looking, okay? Well, folks, David was all of this wrapped up in one guy. And in many ways, he is the central character of the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible. And, uh, for instance, let's just look at the FaceTime that some of the early characters of the Bible get. Abraham, who was the father of Israel, the first person that God chose to create Israel, he only gets 14 chapters in the Old Testament that are devoted to him. Elijah, who is the greatest prophet, uh, probably of the Bible, only 10 chapters are devoted to him. But when it comes to David, there are 66 chapters in the Bible that are devoted solely to him. He's mentioned over 660 times 
in the Scriptures. 600 times in the Old Testament, 60 times in the New Testament. And he has the honor. Imagine this. The Bible is being written, and you think, you know, what's really important are all the names, but the first name, Adam, we remember him. But the last name that is mentioned in the Bible is of David. Jesus said these words. He said, I am the offspring of who? What's it say? David, the bright and morning star. This was the last time, folks, that a human being was ever mentioned in Scripture itself. And to this day, Israel flies a flag with the star of David on it because he is that central of a figure. He was a remarkable man. But in the text that we're going to look at this morning, God says that what was really remarkable about him was not all of his accomplishments, not all of his gifts, not his strength, not his talents, but what really drew God to David was his heart. And I'll tell you that the secret of spending all this time in David over this summer, for me, is not that we just get to know more about his life and all the things that he did and all the cool stories that we'll read about. But it's that as we look at his heart, that God might change everybody's heart in this place. And that we would have different hearts on August 12th when we end this than we have today. And I don't just mean different, but I mean softer and kinder and loving and confident and courageous hearts. And God will change your heart if you will open yourself up to him throughout this series. Now, let me give you a little bit of background leading up to David. First of all, Israel had been placed in slavery for over 400 years in Egypt. And God sends uh, to uh, the Israelites a guy by the name of Moses. And God uses Moses to carry the Israelites out of Egypt and into the Promised Land. And the Promised Land was like Hawaii. You know? I mean, it just was plush. Everything was great. And so they get to there, and they get to this promised land, and finally, God says, well, we've got to have some order. We have to have some organization. And so he sets up some judges. Some guys like Joshua and Gideon and Samson. And the last judge of this era in the promised land is a guy by the name of Samuel. And Samuel had led Israel as a judge for many, many years. But the people didn't want judges, and the people didn't want God to be their king. The people wanted to look like all the other nations, and so they wanted a king. And so God gets Samuel, and he calls him to go and anoint, or to call out a king. And the person was named Saul. And Saul was an impressive person. He was head and shoulders above everyone else in the country. But Saul became increasingly corrupt and violent and evil as power and politics sometimes happens. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14, it says this, The Lord has sought out a man after his own wife. 
his own heart and appointed him leader of his people. And in our story today, what we're going to find is that Samuel, this old, old man, finds a new king. Let's pick it up in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, You have mourned long enough for Saul. I have rejected him as king of Israel. So fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Find a man named Jesse who lives there, for I have selected one of his sons to be king. But Samuel asked, How can I do that? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Take a heifer with you, the Lord replied, and say that you have come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you which of his sons to anoint for me. So Samuel did as the Lord instructed. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town came trembling to meet him. What's wrong? they asked. Do you come in peace? Yes, Samuel replied. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Purify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then Samuel performed the purification rite for Jesse and his sons and invited them to sacrifice too. When they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought, Surely this is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, Don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way that you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse told his son Abinadab to step forward and to walk in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, this is not the one the Lord has chosen. Next, Jesse summoned Shema. But Samuel said, neither is this the one the Lord has chosen. In the same way, all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Then Samuel asked, are these all the sons that you have? Well, they're still the youngest, Jesse replied, but he's out in the fields watching the sheep and the goats. Send for him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. So Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. And the Lord said, this is the one. Anoint him. So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil he had brought and anointed David with oil. And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. Then Saul returned to Ramah. So here's the story. God says to this old man Samuel, Hey, I want you to go out and anoint a new king. We are going to have a new king. Go and find him. And Samuel kind of pulls God aside and he points out, he's like, "Um, we've already done that. Like, we've already appointed one king. He's fairly new too. And if we go and appoint another one, the old king is not going to be very happy and he's going to take it out on me. So God, you know, do you got my back? And God says, trust me. So Samuel goes out to this little obscure village called Bethlehem. And you'll notice that in verse 4, that the text says 
that when the elders came out to Samuel, how does it describe them? They're trembling. They are scared. They're afraid. Because when Samuel came to your vision, again, he's a judge. How many of you... I won't ask that question. Um, But if you've ever stood before a judge before... Some of you were getting nervous, sorry. If you've ever stood before a judge before, you know it's an intimidating thing. I mean, I remember one time that I was just there to stand as like a, a person for another person, and I'm sitting there and I'm freaking out like, man, they might take me. You know, like, like the guys in the orange suits, they may put me in there with them. And I wasn't even in trouble. I'm wearing orange today. So, uh, you know. But they come out, and they are very concerned because Samuel only showed up to your community when someone had sinned and messed up big time. And they're all looking around. Who has messed up? Who has done something wrong? Somebody's in trouble because a judge just doesn't show up. And Samuel tries to reassure them, it's okay, folks. It's fine. It's going to be good. I'm here for a really cool reason. Out of all the villages that God could have chosen, He chose yours to bring the leader of Israel to. So Samuel invites all the elders and all of Jesse's family to come. And uh, you can just imagine what kind of an event this must have been like and how it would have just went all over the place. I mean, it would be kind of like Billy Graham coming to Modoc or Kamak, you know? I mean, like if Billy Graham came to one of those places and, they, and he says, now we're going to anoint the President of the United States. I mean, everyone in Delaware County and Madison County and all the counties would show up and would be there. And so, when Jesse gets there, he's kind of proud. He's proud. He's very proud that... His oldest son is going to be the nation's next king. Now, you've got to picture this thing in your mind, folks, because it's, it's quite comical. Jesse is standing now before the prophet Samuel, God's judge, his spokesperson. And he is so proud of his oldest son. And the oldest son pulls up in one of these. Alexis. And everybody knows him because he was the class president, the quarterback of the football team, and now he's one of the big CEOs in the nation. And he steps out of the car and he has such a uh, you know, charismatic presence. And people are drawn into him. And uh, he's walking around. He's the kind of person who walks into a room and everybody has their eyes on him. And Jesse says, this is my son, Eliab. And Eliab in Hebrew stands for this. You demand. (laughs) Actually, I have no idea. I didn't look that up. (laughs) But uh, I thought it would be good. But Jesse is like, this is Eliab. He demands. And all the elders come and they're like, no, 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 we know him. He the man. And Samuel even knows him. And he knows his repertoire. And he's like, no, 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 no. He the man. And the Lord comes down and he looks at him and he says, he not the man. He not 
the man. And it's sort of confusing to everybody because Eliab had been placed as this person. And so he's like, oh, well, okay, maybe it's my second son. So they bring the second one up. His name is Abinadab. He, not the man. Then they bring up Shema. And they say, well, surely. No, no, no. He, not the man. And he goes through seven sons, and none of them are the man. And by this time, Samuel is wondering, God, why did you send me here? None of these are the one that you said. I mean, it's like seven contestants in a pageant, you know what I mean? And they've all been rejected. So he asks Jesse, he says, well, Jesse, do you have any more sons? Now think about that. That is a dumb question, isn't it? If you have kids, you don't forget them. You might want to forget them sometimes, like in a store, but you don't forget them. And Samuel comes and he says, you know, do you, are there any other ones? And it's almost like an afterthought. And Jesse's like, oh, oh yeah, I forgot. There, there's the youngest one. And he doesn't even mention his name. All the others are mentioned by name. Uh, he's not. And you need to understand that in the Hebrew culture, folks, the youngest person is not just the last one that's born, but he is low man on the totem pole. He is at the bottom of the barrel. He is the one that no one really thinks will become much at all. And there's a big significance in the Bible about the place of the oldest child and how important and significant that is. Let me unpack that for a little bit. How many of you in here, by a sign of hands, are the firstborn in your family? Raise your hand. Okay. So those are the firstborn. Now, for all the rest of us, how many of us have ever noticed that the firstborn get some unfair advantages? Yeah. Like some of you are fearful to raise your hand because they've had so many. You ever notice that? It would kind of be like... Uh, you know, a photo album. And there might be other circumstances, but let's just say a photo album. This is my wife's photo album. She's the oldest. And let's say that Jesse comes and he pulls out the oldest photo album. And he's like, this is my son, Eliab. And uh, here is Eliab. When he's born, and he flips the page, and here is Eliab, Eliab when he's one hour old. And you flip the page, and here is Eliab when he's two hours old. Then here is Eliab on his second day, and on and on and on. And it like chronicles every single day of this kid's life. And then he pulls out the album for Abinadab. And he said, here is Abinadab. Here is when... He was born. Look at that picture. Here is Abinadab when he was one year old. Here is Abinadab going off to preschool. Then they pull out Shema's. And they pull it out and they say, here's Shema being born. Here's Shema in first grade. See how the pictures just get a little bit further away. And finally you get to number eight and you get to David. And they go, look. Here is David being born. Man, we've got to get a lot more pictures of David, you know? It's like we don't have any of those. And 
That's the way it was. It was just like an afterthought. It was just like a thing that David wasn't even thought about because he was the youngest. And so he goes, you got any more sons? And he's like, oh, yeah, well, there's the youngest one. But he's out in uh, tending the sheep. He's not the man. I can tell you, he's not the man. And Jesse kind of barrels down and he says, we will not leave. We will not go anywhere until he comes back. And now, folks, what has to happen is someone has to go out and find David. And this could take hours before that happened. And here are all the beauty you know, contestants. It's like you know, the, the Miss Universe or Miss America pageant. They're all hoping that the first one dies so that they can take the place. That's the only way you know, in the rules that it happens, basically. And so they're all standing around. And they're waiting, they're waiting, and they're like, you the man. They're like, no, I'm not the man. Are you the man? No, I'm not the man. Well, who's the man? Seven kids, not the man. And finally, David shows up in this, an 85 Chevette. And God says, this is the one. This is the one. This is the man. Folks, David is the youngest. He is the runt of the litter. He should not be chosen. He should not be the man, according to this culture. The firstborn was who was important, not the last one. But God has a way in Scripture, on and on again, that He turns things upside down. And what everybody else thinks should be the norm, He turns it around. And He says to Samuel these words, People judge by the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, was David gifted? Was David talented? Was David strong? Yeah, he was all these. And gifts and talents and strength is important to God. But what 1 Samuel points out, folks, is that in the human race, we inevitably obsess and we look at external accomplishments and we think that's what's most important. That if we just are charming and we're attractive and we're attentive and we have all of this outward success, that that's what's important. And so we, we tend to think, if those things are obvious and those things are in your life, then I'm a blessed person. And I'll have wealth, and I'll have fame, and I'll have my name on magazines and covers and on television shows. And human beings also think this, that if I don't have those things, if I don't have charm, if I don't have attractiveness, if I don't have accomplishment, if I don't have visible things, then I am a bad person. I'm a loser. I really don't matter. And in God's kingdom, He says it is not so. In my kingdom, God says, everybody counts. From the youngest to the oldest and everyone in between. God says, in my kingdom, everybody has something to offer. Each one of us are uniquely gifted. And he says, don't compare yourself to anyone else because you are my treasure. You're one of a kind. And if you take the best gifts that you have, not comparing yourself to anyone else, but you take the best gifts that you have, and you take a heart fully devoted to God, and you surrender both of those things to Him, 
that he says that's kingdom dynamite. That's when God is going to move. That's when he will uh, do all kinds of things in your life. When you take whatever gifts you've been given and you take your heart and you surrender to God. When 1 Samuel 13, again, it says, The Lord has sought out a man after his own, what's it say? Heart. And that's what he found in David. So what I want to look at for the rest of our time is what was so appealing to God about David? What were the characteristics of David's heart? Well, I think there are three, and the first one is this, is that David had a heart of wild abandon. I believe David's heart was characterized by a sense of wild abandon. David had a heart that was so filled with passion for God that he says, I abandon everything else and I focus only on God alone. And you see this throughout the Psalms. For example, in Psalm uh, uh, 9, verse 1, it says, I will praise you, O Lord, with all my heart. David had an unguarded, passionate heart. He never held it back. He wasn't careful. He wasn't cautious. He wasn't calculating. He was generous and free. Multiple times throughout scriptures, King David, the leader of the Israel, would just kind of leap up and jump up and down. He would dance in the midst of prime ministers and important dignitaries, in front of the big wigs, in front of people that you don't jump up and down and dance in front of. He would do that. Because when the presence of God came upon David, he didn't care who was around. He danced. A few weeks ago, we were uh, driving as a family in our car. And we were listening to uh, some CDs. And all of a sudden, uh, my kid's favorite song comes up, uh, God's Not Dead, He's Surely Alive. And uh, they're both back there in their car seats. They're all strapped in, and they're just, like, moving. It looked like the two chairs were going back and forth. I'm like, Jennifer, did you put those down correctly? Because this doesn't look safe. And they're, like, moving back and forth. It's like the car seats are dancing. And we finished the song, and they said, no, 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 we want to listen to it again, Dad. So, you know, I put it back and we listen to it a second time. This time, their energy level is even higher. And their hands are up now and they're like, God's not dead, he shall lie, he live on the inside. That was not Jordan, okay? That was Shiloh. And finally, about the fifth time of listening to this, their energy level is sky high. It was as if they were saying, Dad, I might be strapped right now in this driver's seat, but in my mind, I am outside and I am dancing on the streets. Then we got home later that day and they're like, Dad, let's worship. And I'm like, worship? They're like, yeah, we want to listen to that song just a little bit more. And I'm thinking to myself at that point, Not a like real spiritual thing. I'm thinking, I hate that song. I've listened to it five times already today. And they're like, no, 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 come on. And my little one, Shiloh, comes up and she says, 
Dad, let's dance. And so we danced. Three times. Finally, after the third one, I kind of bowed out and I said, no, 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 I'm done right now. And I see him bebopping around. And all of a sudden, I got a prompting from God that said, Chris, how often do you just dance and jump and leap for me? You know, folks, it must make God so incredibly happy to look down at his kids when they are in wild abandon to the rest of the world and they simply love and have joy and gratitude and all the goodness of life. And they leap up and down and they have great joy simply because of the God who loves them. And I just want to ask you today, when was the last time that you jumped up or down or you danced in God's presence? I mean, when was the last time that you got to work and you had all of the possibilities of doing some great things for that day to be used by God in a great way. And before you sat down at your seat, you just jumped up and down. Do it tomorrow. It will freak people out. When was the last time that you saw your spouse, if you're married, and you were just so thrilled that God could have put such a magnificent person in your life that when you saw them, you just jumped up and down? Now, some of you probably have jumped up and down about your spouse on other issues, um, but just out of joy, just to know them. When was the last time that you were alone with God and you were so grateful that He made you and He loved you and He chose you for this thing called life? And that you have lungs that can breathe and eyes that work and a mind that thinks. And Jesus died for you so that you would not only have life today, but that you might have life after this life. Life from God. That you just couldn't hold anything else in because you were so filled with joy of God in your life. Now let me tell you what I think. I think for far too many of us folks... It has been way too long since we have jumped up and down with the joy of being in God's presence. And I think God looked at David and he saw that wild abandon in his heart that he would dance and jump and leap in front of anyone when the presence of God was there. And you know what, folks? I want to have a heart like that. I really do. I don't want to go to my grave with a cold, calculating, protective, predictable heart. And I don't think anyone in this room wants to do that as well. And I hope and pray that God does some heart work on us this summer. My prayer for you is that for many of us, we would worship God in such a new and fresh and creative way that we would jump up and down in the presence of Him. I'm just praying that God would form some of your hearts to take every hard thing away and soften it enough that you would be open to the presence of Almighty God. 
Here's the second characteristic about David's heart. It was that he had deep reflection. Deep reflection. There are many statements of deep reflection that uh, David makes in the Psalms, but here's one in 139 uh, that's really powerful. Let's read it together. It'll come up on the side screen. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Search me, O God, and know my heart. I want you to know my heart, God. You know when I think David's heart was formed the most? His heart was formed the most with all of the time that he spent alone with God as a shepherd. And he learned this. The Scripture says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. How we need that these days. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. You know, David just spent a lot of time, folks, waiting on God. You know, I was just thinking about this uh, this week, that I wonder what David's life was like the day after he was anointed king. 1 Samuel 16 happens, and then what happens after that? Well, the scripture tells us that Samuel leaves and he goes to Ramah. Saul goes back to being a king, and David goes back to being what? A shepherd. I mean, nothing has changed, folks. I mean, even though David had been anointed king, he didn't have anyone to tell it about. I mean, he couldn't tell anyone about it. I mean, he's like out there, he's like, hey, sheep, I'm king. Sheep, I'm the king. Sheep are not impressed by kings. They could care less. And I can just imagine how difficult that must have been for him. All those years of leading flocks of sheep, and he finally gets this moment where they say, this is the one, he's anointed. And then he has to go back out with the sheep again. All those years. And then the years got worse because he had to hide from Saul. And we'll talk about that more this summer. But Saul was after him to kill him because he knew that he was anointed king now and he's king and there can only be one king. And so he wanted to take him out. And so David is hiding in caves and he's, uh, you know, in one spot and then to another spot. But those years were not wasted, folks. Because God was growing in David a strong heart. In solitude and quiet, God was building a deep heart. And God wants to do the same thing for you and me. But the only problem is is that for so many of us, our lives are so fast-paced and accelerated, and the noise simply of the world itself keeps us from giving some space and time for it. Let me put it in a form of a question. Do you guys ever get tired of the noise? You ever just get tired of it? A noisy world? I mean, all day long you're bombarded with information. I see you guys all the time. You do it even during church. Even though we tell you, you know, don't be texting. Some of you can't let... Some of you are feeling guilty right now, aren't you? But you're getting texts all the time. You're getting emails. You're getting Facebook updates. TV, radio, all of that. 
Last week, uh, or this past week, my family went out to eat at Cracker Barrel, one of my favorite places. And uh, after we were done eating, my parents decided they were going to take uh, our two girls, who are five and three, Jordan and Shiloh, to the, to the little area, the shopping area, the little store that they have there. And so they're looking around, and I go with them, and we're shopping, and we're looking for a very important object. A hamster. And we find a hamster, but that's not the right hamster. And we go through all these hamsters. And finally, I'm hamstered out. And I look out the windows, and I notice those white rocking chairs at Cracker Barrel. And I just, I'm like, I'm done shopping. And so I walk outside, and no one's on the porch. It's just me. And I get on one of those rocking chairs, And I just look up to the blue sky, and there's no noise around me. The the music wasn't even playing at Cracker Barrel. It was just me, and I'm looking up at the sky. And I said, you know, God, if you want to to say anything to me, I'm listening. And so I'm rocking, I'm just listening, and all of a sudden, I just sense God kind of prompt me. Just in my spirit, not, not uh, audibly. But he said, Chris, you've got to cut down the noise. And then my wife, Jennifer, walked right up to me and told me about the hamster. True story. True story. Folks, many of us can't get very connected with God because we just have way too much noise in our lives. Henry Nouwen, the great theologian, said this. He said, Solitude molds self-righteous people into gentle, forgiving people who are so deeply convinced of their own great sinfulness and so fully aware of God's even greater mercy that their life itself becomes a ministry. Folks, I hope all of you are serving in some capacity here at the JAR. It's important uh, for us to do that. I love the opportunities I get to serve. This uh, Saturday, I'll be at Servefest because I love for us to reach out to our community. I hope some of you will join me. But even more important, folks, in all the things that you could do is your heart. That it would be shaped and formed in such a way that you just walking in people's presence is a ministry to them. That when someone sees you or hears you or you listen to some of the pain in their life, that that alone, folks, in and of itself, that people are like receiving God's love, receiving God's grace, simply from you walking into their presence. And folks, when it comes right down to it, that's the goal of the jar. We have a lot of programs and things that go on, and they're great, and I encourage you to be a part of them, but ultimately, that is not what we are about. What we are about is trying to create hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit that look more and more like Jesus. Folks, I want to have a heart that God would look down upon, and I hope that you would want to have a heart that God would look down upon that is totally reflective and connected to Him. If you would, I'd like you to pull out these two uh, little inserts that were in your program uh, when you walked in.
And we've developed a reading plan for you to do Psalms in the summer. It's this one here. In just five, five, ten minutes, you can read through all of Psalms this summer. And uh, I would strongly encourage you to do that, to, to take this and just to start reading through that. Some of the greatest prayers, if you're like, I don't know how to pray, some of the greatest prayers that have ever been prayed are in the Psalms. They will refresh your spirit. And I guarantee that if you do this 70 days from now, at the end of the summer, if you do this consistently, that your heart will change and the openness of God working in your life will be amazing. You'll have a fresh heart and it'll be changed. In fact, I was so convicted by my little encounter at Cracker Barrel that on Mondays in the afternoons, I'm just going to spend moments doing exactly what I hope many of you will, taking this out and getting away and just being in the presence of God. Whether it's five minutes, whatever it is, however you can do it, just to do it. And the cool thing about this summer is that we're going to have something called Questions with Chris. On Thursday nights at 6 o'clock upstairs here, Sometimes maybe you have questions that you want to ask and you can't do it because we're strapped by time and we have to, uh, you know, get out of here. But you're like, you know, I want to, or there's a scripture I want to grow into a little bit more. And so at 6 o'clock, just from 6 to 7, upstairs, um, I'll be there and we'll look at some of these scriptures and we'll take any of your questions and we'll try to grow our hearts a little bit closer to God. Well, let's look at the third and final facet. I really hope many of you will do this. You'll be challenged to. Kind of the last thing that's characterized by David's heart is a stubborn love. David's heart is characterized by a stubborn love. A love that just won't quit. You know, I was thinking about it, that if we had these three and Someone came up to me and said, Chris, you can only choose one of these. Which one would you choose? And without a doubt for me, as I was thinking about that, it would be the last one, that I would want to have a stubborn love. Psalm 78 says this, And David shepherded them, the people of Israel, with the integrity of heart. With integrity of heart. And the idea here is that you have an undivided heart. It's the opposite of a fickle heart. He loved people with a heart of a shepherd. And he just kept loving them. David loved people no matter what. Just think about it. First of all, there's Saul. Saul is a corrupt old man, and he is seeking out a way to deceive and kill David. He's constantly trying to find a way. And two times... David had him cornered, and we'll talk about it. But two times, David had him cornered, and he could have killed Saul and been king earlier. And he would have been justified, but he refused to do it. And when Saul died, the Scripture says that David wept bitterly. He loved Saul, the one that he played music to, and he had a stubborn love to love him. Then at the end of David's life, he finds out that Saul actually has a relative. It's his grandson, a guy by the name of Mephibosheth, who was crippled. And David summons this crippled man to the palace. And Mephibosheth is brought before David, and he's scared to death 
Because he knows that he could be a potential heir. And if the king brings me in here and I'm already crippled and I'm already down, he could just wipe me away and get rid of me. And David looks at this powerless, disabled man and he remembers his grandfather, Saul, in such loving ways. And he says, don't be afraid. I love you. I loved your grandfather. I want to restore everything that belonged to your grandfather and I will give it to you. I want you to eat at my table. I want you to be my son. And finally, there was David's son, Absalom. His dad gave him all the good things that a president or a king gives to a son. But he was a rebellious kid. He was a defiant kid. He wanted to overthrow his father because he knew he was next in line. And he tried to kill him. And ultimately, in this battle, as it's going on, the word comes back that David is safe. He will remain king because Absalom had been killed in battle. And you would think that that would be exciting for him, but it's not. And David says these beautiful words, Oh, Absalom, my son, I wish I would have died instead of you. If only I could have taken your place. Folks, I'll tell you, when David loved you, when David loved you, you stayed loved. There was grace and love, even for the most stubborn person. He loved them with a stubborn love right back in their face because he loved people. And that's why he's the only person in the Bible who is told to be a man after God's own heart. And folks, I want to love like that. You know, this week I was thinking about my wife, my kids, some of my friends. I was thinking about some of you. I was thinking about some people who are disconnected from Christ and the church. And I thought that at the end of my life, that if on my tombstone they would actually just put he had a stubborn love for God and people. That's all that would matter to me. And I guess if I, I went through my whole life and I didn't accomplish very much at all, But at the end of my life, God said, you had a stubborn love for people. That's probably the only thing that would matter. I'd be a success. And yet on the same light, if the jar became a mega church and there were thousands and thousands of people and I had all kinds of staff and a huge building and all that kind of stuff, but that my friends and my family and the church that I served could not say that I didn't have a stubborn love for people, I would be a failure, an absolute failure. I want to have a heart that has a stubborn love for God and for people. But my problem is, and maybe it's yours too, is that sometimes my heart just gets cold. It gets protective. 
It doesn't want to forgive people and give people second chances. And sometimes my heart walks away from God. And so I was thinking about it this week that maybe you're like me and you just need God to open the eyes of your heart. That you would see and have a heart like God. Derek's going to uh, come up and just kind of close us with a, it's a real old song. In fact, when I shared it with uh, him this week, he's like, ugh. And I said, you're doing it anyway. No, I'm joking. Actually, I really did. But <laughs> um, And what it simply talks about, folks, is that we would have eyes that are open to God. And so I'm going to pray, and we're going to do something different today. When we close, we won't stand. I'd just like you to take a moment to kind of allow yourself to reflect and open yourself up to God. If you want to sing to the words, you can. But uh, for us to just have a moment. So let's pray. God, thank you. uh, so much for your love for us. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the life of David. Lead us, God, throughout this life together this summer. God, I pray right now that through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would open the eyes of our hearts, God, to help us to see you and to build a life for you. We ask this in Jesus' name.
a stubborn love for you and for for people. We make this our prayer today. Amen. We know that you're loved in this place. Have a great week. And if you need prayer for anything, there'll be people up here to pray with you.